So week by week throughout all of this fall, we are walking through one of the most important letters in history, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And so chapter by chapter, week in and week out, we are marching through this significant letter, and this has been our roadmap, and it's what kind of keeps us anchored to not getting lost in the 16 chapters that is this letter, that the first section is about what a mess and what a mess our visuals were in that moment. What a mess that sin is worse than you realize. And what a gift. Grace is bigger than your struggles. And so we talked about sin, and then we talked about grace. And then last week, starting with chapter 8, we started talking about um, what a God. And it's really easy to be captivated by God when you read Romans chapter 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we go, Amen. You know, we discover that for all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Amen. We know that the suffering of the present time is not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. Amen. We are more than conquerors. One Baptist here. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. And then I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. I mean, you're marching through chapter 8, and it's amen, amen, amen. And then Paul takes what you might think is a little detour at the end of chapter 8. With the huge crescendo, nothing can separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then he basically twists and says, what if you're not in Christ Jesus? What then? And all the air just gets sucked out of the room for that church in Rome and for us. I have on my computer the Tim Keller sermon archive. I have 22 years of Tim Keller sermons. You're like, no wonder you quote that guy so much. Tim Keller virtually preached on Romans chapter 8 once a year. Statistically speaking. You know how many times he's preached on Romans chapter 9? Zero. I took an entire class in seminary on Romans 9 through 11. An entire semester. I remember one of my exams was just walking in with nothing but the Greek New Testament, having to face an essay exam, just nothing with the Greek test in front of me, of Romans 9 through 11. Ask me how many times I have preached on Romans 9 through 11. Zero. Except for the 845 service, whoever that snarky person from the choir is. Zero until today. And today you're about to discover why. Because this is hard. Because the question of what we're starting to address is not just what are all the benefits and how great is the God for those of us who are in Christ. The Apostle Paul has this gaping hole in his soul for his people, many of whom who don't believe, don't accept. When Paul started out at the beginning and he started talking about the gospel, he defined the gospel in the first chapter is that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
This is known as the doctrine of election because we know that God has chosen. We know that God has sent us Christ. We know that God has elected and given salvation. We know that God has done these things and is doing these things. And then we look at the world and we look at the world and there are people who believe and there are people who don't believe. There are people who accept and there are people who don't accept. And so how, as Christians... Are we to not have an explanation for everything, but how are we to approach this difficult subject? This wasn't a hypothetical for Paul. And I imagine the minute that I brought up this subject is not a hypothetical for you. That you know faces, and you know names, and you know people who do not accept Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 9, he gives us a blueprint for being able to address this difficult topic. And the first step in this difficult portion of the journey is how do we view non-belief according to Romans chapter 9? And the first way is with grief. Romans chapter 9 begins with Paul saying this in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He goes as far in a few minutes to be able to say, if I could be cut off, if I could be accursed so that others could be brought in, he would take it. Think of all the benefits in Romans chapter 8 that Paul has listed of what it means to be in Christ. He said, I myself would be glad to be cut off if others could be brought in. This is not the grief and the anguish and the sadness of unfairness. That's not why Paul is crying with his tears here. It is the grief of longing, of something that has not yet happened that he desperately wants to see happen. And so the Apostle Paul begins what is maybe the most complicated theological explanation over the course of three chapters with his tears. It reminds me of the time that Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem and he looks over the skyline of the city and his eyes are filled with tears because here was the place where the sacrifices were made, the prophets were speaking, the law is given, and he knows how stubborn and unreceptive they are. And so we need to begin in the place where Paul begins with non-belief. We need to begin with our grief. And then the second thing that Paul does here is that he goes from grief to openness. This is how Paul talks about it here. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. What Paul is trying to say here is that for a long time, Israel and most of us fall into the trap of entitlement of thinking it belongs to us because of X that we were born into the right family or into the right group or into the right society or the right nation. And what Paul is saying is, hey, 
Israel doesn't get to be Israel just because of DNA. And going all the way back to Abraham, he says Israel is Israel because of the promise. You and I are a part of the promise. Not by bloodline, but because of the covenant of God. That's why we're a part of this thing. And the whole thing that we in this room are a part of this, in this part of the world, is one glorious surprise. And that surprise has been woven into the beginning of the fabric of everything that God has done. I mean, the fact that there is creation is surprise. The fact that we were created to be able to reflect God's goodness, that's a surprise. By the time you get to Abraham and Sarah, I mean, AARP cards, Medicare cards, they got it all. And God's like, through these grand adults, as we like to call them at Peachtree, I'm going to begin a new kind of family. Surprise. By the time you get to Jacob, and remember how the older brother was supposed to be the one that was in charge over the younger brother and had the bigger inheritance and the one who was supposed to leave things forward? God does a great surprising reversal with Jacob and Esau. Surprise. How would that work out in your family dynamics? There's also the surprise of Jacob. I mean, you would think, well, maybe God chose Jacob because he was more, you know, kind of a stand-up guy, better character, that kind of thing. Oh, no. Jacob's a scoundrel. God's going to work in and through him in spite of him. Surprise. By the time you get to Joseph, he's thrown into prison, and yet God's going to save his people through that. Surprise. There's a famine in the land. We're going to move you to Egypt so you don't die. Surprise. I mean, is there anything? That's just the first book of the Bible, people. Is there anything about the covenant of Abraham and the promise of God that's not one surprise after another, which means there is a certain measure of openness that is required on our part when we get to the mystery of the gift of salvation. I don't mean an openness in the sense of I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay theology, because that's not in the good book. What I mean is, if at any point you think I'm in the in-group, and that's the outgroup. That's the moment that you've lost your openness of how God tends to work in calling all kinds of people to himself. Part of the way he will say that is with this verse here later in the chapter. Those who were not my people, I'll call my people. By the way, that's us in this room. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it's said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The surprising reversal of the gospel dictates that we not only approach the mystery of belief and not belief with grief, but also with a measure of surprise at what God is able to do. Third thing that we discover here in Romans chapter 9, in a chapter that no preacher ever preaches on, with grief with openness and with mercy. Here, he talks about the patriarchs. Down here, as he starts to march through all of the Old Testament, he talks about Moses. 
quoting from that time of year, quoting <clears throat> that part of the Bible, excuse me. I will have mercy. This is God speaking. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I want you to pretend for a moment to fill in the blank on this phrase. I will have mercy on, and then fill out the blank. I'll have mercy on the people who deserve it. Ooh, that's not going to fly. I'll have mercy on the people who can afford it. Uh, I don't think that's the right thing either. I'll have the mercy on the people who are the smart enough to get it. No. I'll have the mercy on the people who want it badly enough. Any way that you can think of to finish that sentence with, I will have mercy on blank, other than because God has mercy on them, is the minute that you have destroyed mercy and turned it into an obligation. If you can earn it, it ain't mercy. It's entitlement. It's an obligation. And so we run into here the sovereignty of God. And if God doesn't get to be in charge and sovereign over our salvation is the minute that we've manipulated a little game into cornering God into saying, you owe this to this person and to me. The way that Paul unpacks this in Romans chapter 9 is that he does so by talking about the Exodus story, and he talks about, do you remember this part of the story? This part always makes me a little squeamish, that it talks about how uh, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and then it also talks about how God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Does that make anybody else uncomfortable? Here's how Tim Keller talks about it in the sermon archive. God gave Pharaoh what he chose. When God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. God hardens those he wants to harden, and all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. Are you tracking with this philosophically? The shock is not that God does not extend his compassion to everyone that he extends it to anyone. The moment that we think we're in charge of salvation is the moment that it's no longer mercy. And so the first thing that Paul does in his grief is he talks about, and in, in this discussion of salvation. He talks about the grief. He talks about how we need to be able to be surprised. He talks about how this is all about the mercy of God. And then he moves from the patriarchs to Moses to Job. You remember Job's story, right? Doing really well. World falls apart. Friends sit with him for a while. When they open their mouths, they give bad advice. And there comes this moment towards the end of Job's complaints where God speaks to Job from the whirlwind and Job is on the edge of a blasphemy and God stops him and says, wait a minute, where were you 
when I formed the foundation of the earth. Sit down and I will talk to you. You are a man and I am God. Job gets put in his place. And Paul references this because when it comes to these types of belief, non-belief kinds of questions, sometimes we need to be put in our place. This is the way that Paul describes it here. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? You and I are being questioned by God, not the other way around. We are the clay, he is the potter. We are the art, God is the artist. What right does the art have to tell the artist, you know how you should do this? This is how you should do it. Complete violation of the understanding of reality. This is not how life works for the art and the artist. And every once in a while, you and I need kind of that spirituality, reality, gut check of remembering our role and that God is God and that we are not. If you want to watch my head explode, come to my office in a moment of pastoral care and say, I can't believe in a God who, and then fill in that blank. The reason that drives me crazy is because the minute that you've done that, you have put yourself in the position of God. That now you're in charge of what God and his character should be like. And so as Paul makes his way through Romans chapter 9, do you see how he's working his way through all of the covenant, all of the Old Testament? And so he begins with his tears and his grief. He talks about the surprises. He talks about how God is merciful. With humility, we need to approach this moment. And then finally, with trust. With trust. Here's the verse. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's a family in this church who was doing the bedside vigil for the patriarch, for the father, multiple generations. And as they are waiting, as they are watching, as they are praying, as they are struggling. This is a committed, faithful family. In the hospital, they're struggling because it's not just the normal struggle. The one in the bed is verbalizing over and over again. His eyes are closed and he's saying, I can't get in. I can't get in. They won't let me in. I can't get in. And so here is this man in this family, and he is on death's doorstep. And he's saying he can't get in. True story. 
His eyes open. His mouth falls aghast with surprise. And he says, I'm in. And he dies. No one who believes in him will ever be put to shame. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of doubts. But you can be confident of this. If this was a scorecard, how do you think that we would be doing as a people, as a church, as Christians in American society with regards to issues and relationships of faith and non-faith? And if I was to put this back up here, how do you think the world experiences us in evangelism? Is it with grief and with openness and with mercy and humility and trust? Is that people's impression of the church? Or is it almost the opposite? Indifference, exclusivity, entitlement, arrogance, and fear. What Paul says when he starts out Romans chapter 9, if he had like a thesis statement, it's in verse 6, and he puts it like this. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul walks into the trickiest, most complicated minefield of anything theologically he will talk about. What he starts with is the conviction that God's word has not failed his people. He will be true to the promise. God will call his people. And so let us pray. Our loving God and Father, I begin by asking for you to forgive us Forgive us for the fact that we don't handle this subject very well. And in fact, we, like this preacher, often avoid it. And yet you've given us a wise sage to go before us to help us to know how we can faithfully approach even the most difficult of theological questions. Help our tears to be genuine for those who are lost. Help us to be open for surprises and to be reminded that we are in you not because of flesh, but because of the promise. God, we thank you. We know that we do not deserve this. It is purely a gift of mercy, no obligation on your part. Make sure that our hearts are soft instead of hardened. Forgive us for being quarrelsome. The questions are good, O oh God, but forgive our disbelief. 
for getting out of our lane and thinking that we are God. And finally, God, will you give us that unbridled confidence and trust in you that when we put our faith in you, we will never be put to shame. And that when we do so, we are truly in and your word will never fail. And all of God's people sin.